I just want to say to you, what a blessing it is to bring the Word of God. You know, as I do typically every week, I was just in my office studying this week and, and just, just paused, overwhelmed with the gratitude of this moment right here. I, I want you to know, whether you're a, a church member or you're a first-time guest here today, we don't take this lightly around here. I'm so thankful for God's presence. And uh, the word of the Lord says in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Like that's the invitation of God's presence this morning. And so I was just meditating on the goodness of God and the presence of the Lord and uh, and God began to stir my heart towards uh, an image in the Old Testament. And as you can see the title on the screen today, I want to speak about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, let me just say right at the beginning, th this might be a little bit more academic than I typically preach. But, you know, all of God's word is inspired. Amen. Amen. It's, it's the full counsel of Scripture. And as I just begin to follow the Ark of the covenant. God just began to, to make his, his word rich in my heart and in my life. If you have a Bible, I'm going to have you turn to a couple places with me. And then while you're there, I'll jump to a bunch of other places that we'll put on the screen. But the first place I want you to go is 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. And I can tell right now, somebody's going to have to back the air conditioning down. Or some of us are going to freeze up in here today. Y'all doing all right? It's cold. The air all flows this direction because of the return. So I, I, I feel like I'm in a polar vortex right now. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. Here's what it says. And before we read it, let me just say this is a little bit of a strange story. Just to give you a heads up. It says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all of his men went to Baalah. In Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and he took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, or outbreak against Uzzah. Now, I know you're already encouraged by the word this morning. I can just, I can tell you're like, wow, okay, we want to follow the ark. And this guy did, and it did not end well for him. 
It almost seems shocking to think that someone would want the ark of God and pursue to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, and then God would strike someone dead for touching it. I, I know the story well, and yet it still always strikes me as a little bit shocking when I first read it. But I assure you, this is a costly lesson about the value of God's presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word of God today. I pray that today it would do its work in our hearts and our lives, that we would leave this hour looking more like Jesus than how we came. Lord, anoint my lips to share your word, to refrain from saying things that are not of you, and to not hold back from what you've called me to say. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen. Amen. Let me just kind of unpack for us the significance of the Ark of the Covenant for a few moments. One place I want you to turn to Scripture today, we'll be there for several minutes, is uh, Exodus chapter 25. Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 25. And I want to just lay a little bit of a foundation here. God had been uh, using Moses to lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. They had been there for over 400 years and And he goes to Pharaoh and Moses says, let my people go. And they cross the Red Sea. And now they are a free people for the first time, following God into the great wilderness. And it's in that context that the Lord says in Exodus 25, verse 8, the Lord says to Moses, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell with them. So that's what Moses does. He gets instructions for making a tabernacle, a place that God can meet with them and, and all the furnishings that are going, going into that tabernacle and, and, and what God has conscribed it to look like, his sanctuary on the earth. And then Moses says in Exodus 33, he says, God, you, you told me to lead these people, but you haven't told me who's going with me. Like who, who's, who's gonna lead me if I'm leading the people? Who are you sending with me? And the Lord says this, stay in Exodus 25, but in Exodus 33, the Lord responds to Moses' request and he says this, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us up. In other words, like that's the deal I was looking for. I need your presence or I don't even wanna do this. I need your presence to be with us. So, So God sets a people free and he makes them utterly dependent on his presence. And of all the things that God told Moses to have built so that his presence could go with him, the first thing was the ark. There in Exodus 25, Moses gets instructions for how they are to build the ark of God's presence. The the ark is literally just a chest. And I I, I put this this illustration uh, up because I want you to get a a visual of, of what the ark looked like. It was a box with a lid on it. And the ark was the physical representation of God's presence to his people. Let's look at Exodus 25 in verse 10. We're just gonna read down through this and Look at these instructions. He says, have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. In other words, the box is about two feet uh, tall, two feet wide, two feet deep, and and it's, it's four feet long. He says, I want you to overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it. And fasten them to its four feet. 
Two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark and carry, to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. So God gives these instructions. And then the pillar of fire that led them by night and the pillar of cloud that God had used to lead them by day out in the wilderness and across the Red Sea, God said that, that physical representation of my presence is gonna dwell over the Ark of the Covenant. My presence will be right there. And so part of the instructions that God gives Moses for this ark, for this representation of his presence, is how to carry it. He didn't just tell him to build the ark. He said, I want you to build the ark, and I want you to have some, some rings on the four corners, and I want you to make poles to run through the rings. In other words, if, you're, if the presence of God is going to be handled, it needs to be handled rightly. The presence of God needs to be handled cautiously and, and, and properly. In fact, in, in Numbers chapter 7, uh, the, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel came to Moses and they brought gifts. They brought ox carts and teams of oxen. And, and the Lord told Moses, I want you to receive the oxen and the ox carts, so I want you to give them to the priests so that they can do their work. So each of the clans of the Levites, the priests, received an ox cart and a team of oxen, except for one group. Number seven, nine says, but Moses did not give any to the Kohathites. Why? Because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. And so this one clan of all the Levites, the Kohathites, were given the responsibility of carrying the presence of God. In other words, this is a weighty matter. I want you to feel the burden on your shoulder. Every time you carry it, every time they moved, every time they, they made a shift or the, the cloud of God's presence lifted and they started to leave, the priority, first and foremost, was always the presence of God. When they moved to a new location, the presence of God was the first thing to be set up. And when they were gonna leave, it was the last thing to be packed up. And every time they traveled, the Kohathites always stayed right in the middle. Of all the tribes, they were in the middle. In other words, they were saying, God's presence is so important to us that we have to protect it. It has to be the center of everything that we do. Can I just give a quick application? If you're considering a, a new direction in your life, a new career, a new choice, uh, maybe marriage, whatever it might look like uh, going to a new school, can I encourage you to make sure that the priority of your decisions is the presence of God? So many people have gotten themselves into trouble because they've considered their options and they didn't factor in the presence of God first. But afterwards, they make their decision, they choose their school, they, they choose their spouse, they, they do, and then they ask God to bless their plans. But that's the opposite of how God instructed his people to do it. He said, I, I want you to take care of the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to take care of my presence first and foremost. Let it be at the center of everything you go and everything you do and everywhere you go. In Numbers chapter four, it even says this. It says, when the camp moved. When the camp moved, Aaron, that's the, the head of the Levites, and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it over the ark 
of the covenant of the law. See, a lot of times we see pictures depicted in, of the Old Testament, and you see the priests with the ark on their shoulders, and they're walking, and, and you can see the 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 atonement cover, the lid on the box, and the cherubim uh, there as, as part of it. And, and we see that picture, and we think that's what it looked like, but that's not what it looked like. Because God said, before you ever go anywhere with the ark, what you're going to do, because my presence is holy, because it's to be revered. Not anybody can just walk right into my presence. So they were to take that curtain, the veil that separated God's holy place from those on the outside, and they were to take the curtain off its rod, and they were to lay it over the box. So God's presence would be veiled, but not just veiled once. The next verse says, then they are to cover the curtain with a durable leather and then spread a cloth of solid blue over that and put the poles in place. So first they covered the ark and then they covered what was covering the ark and then they put a blue cloth over top of that and then they carried it on poles so that it wouldn't be touched by human hands. Can I just say, God's presence needs to be protected in your life. I thank God that he calls himself Father before all else. I thank God that the word says we can come boldly into the throne room of grace and find mercy to help us in our time of need. I thank God that Jesus communicated to us we can have an intimate, personal relationship with the Father. But can I just remind you, church, he's still the holy, awesome God who lives in unapproachable light. He's not my homeboy. He's not the big man upstairs. Now, now, we're not staunchy around here, and I'm not wearing a suit this morning, and, and you don't have to, to, to have a, a spirit of religiosity, but there ought to be some awe in the presence of God. Amen? Amen, young people? We need to remember that. We need to remember that God is holy, that he is awesome. And every time he shows up in the word of God, the immediate and appropriate response is people fall prostrate on their faces. It's how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob always prayed, flat on their face before God. And we are, I just want you to know, we are all about making people feel welcomed and comfortable and being hospitable. And, and, and I don't want to create a culture in the church that feels stiff and rigid and, and uninviting, but God help us if we lose reverence. There's a holiness to what's happening right now. The word of God says in 1 Peter, if any man's going to speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That verse causes a shudder down my spine to think that God would allow me to stand here at this sacred desk and be his mouthpiece. So there's, there's, an, there's an awe to God's presence. They had to take care of his word. Inside that ark were the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments that God had etched in stone, given to Moses. The word of God is holy. His word is holy. David said this in Psalm 119. He said, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it night and day. He said, your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light for my path. In Psalm chapter one, the first Psalm, it opens up with these words. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. In other words, they don't walk in step with the wicked. They walk in step with the word. 
They walk in step with the righteous. It says, nor do they stand in the way of sinners. No, they don't stand in the way of sinners. They stand on the truth. Nor do they sit in the company of mockers. He said, this is what the wicked do. They walk this way, they stand this way, and they sit in this place. And he's saying, no, we don't, we, the ones who are blessed don't sit in the company of mockers. They sit submitted to the authority of God's word. In verse 2, he says, but the blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord. And they meditate on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So God commanded Moses to keep the word of God in the center of everything. Let the Kohathites carry the weight on their shoulder. Don't put it on an ox cart. Let them feel the burden. Let them feel the weight of God's word. That's a sober reminder to those of us who, who desire to be teachers. Paul said this to a young pastor, and I take these words to heart. He said in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of God. That's what we're called to, to correctly handle the word of God. Now, right there in Exodus 25, let's read a little bit farther. It's, pick it up in verse 17. The Lord told Moses, he said, I want you to make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and two and a half cubits wide and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover make one cherub on one end the second one on the other make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends verse 20 says the cherubim are to have their wings spread upward overshadowing the cover with their wings the cherubim are to face each other looking toward the cover Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I have given you. This, this cover that he's talking about, the, the atonement lid, in other places in scripture it's called the mercy seat. That lid, is the, it covers the commands of God. That is the place where the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled by the priest. So the blood of the animal would be drained off the altar and gathered and then brought into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat, sprinkled on the lid. Why? Because the lid was covering the commandments that you and I break. See, Paul said this about the commands. He said the commands, he called them the law of sin and death. Doesn't sound like he's speaking too highly of God's word to call it the law of sin and death, but he explains what he meant. In Romans 7 and verse 7, he said, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. In other words, you know, like you get pulled over by an officer and they say, uh, do you know what the speed limit was? You know, there, there's the sign, like on the side of the road. Like, yeah, yeah, we know what the speed limit was. Why? The law communicates to us that we've broken it. He said, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law did not say, 
you shall not covet. And so the law of God was in the box. It was in the Ark of the Covenant. And that law stands to condemn us. The law was a constant reminder that you and I cannot keep God's commands. And so God said, I want you to have a lid. I want you to have an atonement cover over the commands. And I want the priest to make a sacrifice on the altar and let the blood drain out of the sacrifice. And I want you to bring the blood and sprinkle it on the altar so when God's presence, who hovers over the, the box, hovers above the cherubim, looks down, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the sprinkled blood of the sacrifice. And the blood covers your failures and my failures. In verse 22 of Exodus 25, he goes on, he says, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you. I will give you all my commands for the Israelites. So then after Moses dies, Joshua becomes the leader. He's leading the people into the promised land. In Joshua chapter three, he says, give orders to the people. God says to tell the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and you see the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. That's what we're doing this morning. We're just following the Ark. God said, I want you to follow the Ark. Why did he say that? Look at the next verse. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. So God was saying, look, I'm gonna take you places you've never been before, and the only way you're gonna know how to get there is by following my presence, by following my word, by being intentional in your pursuit and in your devotion. And so what happens next is the, the priests receive the command from Joshua. They, they take the ark on their shoulders and they begin to step out. The Bible says in Joshua 3 verse 14, it was flood stage at the Jordan River, and they begin to step out into the waters. And right across on the other side is Jericho. Right on the other side is Jericho, a city with walls so thick that houses were built into them. People could ride chariots across the walls, and so you have to think that the people of Jericho are watching this. Like, what are those people doing down there? It's flood stage. Nobody crosses that flood stage. And, and what's the deal with that, that, that box under the blue curtain? What is that? What are those guys doing? And all of a sudden, the presence of God, the Bible says, as soon as the priest stepped into the waters at a town upstream, the waters were cut off. And before long, they find themselves standing on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan River, and all God's people are crossing over to the other side. Meanwhile, the people of Jericho are watching this. They're watching, they're thinking, what, what is in that box? They knew enough to know that it was a God. We know that because if you back up to chapter two, when they sent the spies in to check it out, the spies met a prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab told them, we heard about you. We heard about what your God did when he set you free from Egypt. We heard about what God did in delivering you from the other battles. And here's what we know. The God of heaven is here with you on the earth. And we think he's in that box. And then the box comes across on dry ground and starts making laps around Jericho once a day, seven times on the seventh day. And they're looking at this going, what in the world do these people have under that blue curtain? Ironically, it was the fear of God that ultimately saved Rahab's life. She feared 
their God, even though she didn't know him. And it was the irreverence and the lack of fear of God that destroyed the Israelites. God said in Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one can rest content, untouched by trouble. So they follow the ark into the promised land. By the time you get to Judges, and all the judges are raised up to deliver one rebellious generation after the next, the ark ends up in the care of Eli, the priest. In 1 Samuel, we meet Eli. Eli's turning a blind eye to sin in his own house. He has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They're wicked. They're wicked. The people would come as prescribed in God's word with a, with a sacrifice of meat that had the fat on it. And they were to boil that sacrifice so that the, the fat would boil off. And, and that was an offering unto the Lord. And then after that was done, uh, a part of that was the portions for the priests to, to provide for their family. But what Hophni and Phinehas were doing is they were coming and they would see people go to put the sacrifice in the vat and, and they would just stick their fork in it and say, we'll take that. And the people were going, no, no, wait, let me, let me boil it first. I, this is for the Lord. And they said, no, 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 it's fine. We want it. They would take the raw meat. They were grocery shopping out of the offering plate. And then they would take it and they would roast the meat. And rather than dealing with their sin, Eli turns a blind eye to it. You can imagine him sitting around the dinner table with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and, and here it is, this beautiful roast that was roasted over the fire. Fat just dripping off of it. He could say something. He could ask him, how'd you get that? Where'd you get that from? But instead, he sat at a table of compromise and he let them live a life of rebellion under his own roof till one day he found out they weren't just stealing out of the offering plate. They were actually sleeping with women that worked in the church. And so he rebukes them and he says, sons, this isn't right. You can't do that. But you know what? By that time, he'd already lost his moral authority. They didn't listen to him. He had compromised so much. And can I just let this story be a warning to us as the body of Christ? We live in a day where, and this is important, don't get me wrong, but we are so infatuated with the idea of loving. Loving people, loving people, loving people. At all costs, we love them. Well, we should love them, but not at the expense of the truth. Because if we're not careful, we can, we can undercut our own moral authority to say, wait a minute, that's wrong. Who are you to say that's wrong? You didn't, you didn't have anything to say about the last 10 things that were wrong. And here's Hophni and Phinehas, priests of God, living in sexual immorality in the pulpit. It's not a hard connection to make to our American culture. When we see not, not just idolaters or, or people living in sexual immorality, serving in ministry, but we're ordaining homosexuals. And at some point, there's gonna be a threshold. At some point, and for some reason, much of the church hasn't gotten there yet, but at some point, we're gonna to get to a threshold where the church is gonna say like Eli, wait, that's not right. And the world will look back at us and say, who are you to say what right and wrong is? You've been, you've been cutting into that steak for years. You've been eating that meat off the altar. You've been living in compromise. Who are you to tell me what is right or what is wrong? We can't lose our moral authority in the name of love. 
So God told Eli, he said, judgment's coming to your house. Judgment's coming. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 34 says, and what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. So then in chapter four, the Philistines go to war against Israel. They kill 4,000 soldiers. The Israelites are scratching their head. We don't understand. Why didn't we win the war? You know what we ought to do? We ought to get the Ark of the Covenant. That's what we need. We need the Ark of the Covenant to come because if we have God's presence on our side, then we'll win the battle. Good plan. So they went and got the Ark of the Covenant and they went to war again against the Philistines. I, I want you to see what it says about that second battle in 1 Samuel 4, beginning in verse 5. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all the Israelites raised such a shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. They said, a God has come into the camp. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And then they tried to encourage themselves. They said, be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And, and when we read the Bible, we assume we know how this is going to go. Oh, you're in trouble now, Philistines. You done mess with God's people. Now they got the Ark of the Covenant. You're in trouble. You know you're in trouble. We know you're in trouble. We know how this story's gonna go. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. In fact, Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What happened? We, we, had, we had God on our side. How many people in our culture are running around saying that? We got God on our side. Is God on your side? Or are you supposed to be on his? So they took the presence of God for granted. They said, you know what? If we just slap a Jesus label on this thing, I think we might win. I'm not really interested in submitting to him. I'm not really uh, following the Lord or his law, but if I can just bring him into the conversation, if I can leverage his authority for my gain, I think we've got a good shot. Anybody hearing this this morning? 30,000 of them died. And Eli's 98 years old. He's sitting on the side of the road on a stool, and he hears the wailing of the people of God in Israel, and he says, what, what happened, what happened? And a little Benjamite comes running from the battlefield, and he tells him what happened. He said, we lost 30,000 troops. Both your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And the ark of God has been captured. Verse 18 says, when Eli heard mentioned the ark of God, he fell backward off of his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old man and he was heavy and he had led Israel for 40 years. The, the word of judgment that came against him was no one in your life will live to be an old man. The Lord said to him in chapter two, if you would have honored me, I would honor you. But those who dishonor me, I will disdain. 
And I had promised you that you would rule, that your family would lead Israel, but not anymore. Not anymore, because you're not leading according to my word. You're leading according to your own plans. You're trying to get me to follow you when I called you to follow me. He falls over dead. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, hears about it. She hears that her father-in-law just died. She hears that her husband and her brother-in-law just died. She was in her third trimester. And then she heard the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. The Bible says she went into labor and she lost a lot of blood and she was about to die in giving birth. And the, the nurses said, cheer up. You've had a son. But she paid no attention to their words. And then it says she named the child Ichabod. Kabod means the glory of God, the weight of God's presence. It's, it's one of those things that are hard to define, but you feel it. You feel the weight of God's presence in the room. She named the child Ichabod. It means the glory has departed. God's presence is no longer here. And, and the chapter ends saying she said this because the ark of God had been captured. So the Philistines took the ark, and I wish I had time to tell more of the story, but they, they tried to keep the ark. That didn't work. Lost people trying to be authority on God's presence. Man, God struck them with plagues. Mice ate all their harvest. It only lasted seven months. Finally, they were like, just give it back to Israel. We don't want the box. Just give it back. So they gave it back. They took it to a place called Beth Shemesh which was honestly a good place to take it because that was a town of Levites. These are priests. These are the people that God said, of all people, you ought to know how to handle the presence and the word of God. So they took it to Beth Shemesh. But they were spiritual leaders in name only. They weren't submitted to the authority of God's word. You know what they did as soon as they got it? They tried to look in the box. <laughs> yeah, they took the lid off. They looked in, 70 of them died. Everybody cries and wails. They said, we don't, want, we don't want God's presence. We don't want God's presence if it's gonna cost us anything. So then they sent it to Abinadab's house and it stayed there for 20 years. It lived in Abinadab's house. His sons grew up with the Ark of the Covenant in their house. His sons, Uzzah and Ahio, grew up with God's presence. It was very familiar. I don't know, maybe it, was a, maybe it became an end table in the living room. I'm not sure what they used it for, but it just sat there. And now we come back to the place where in 2 Samuel, David says, you know, I've taken the city of Jerusalem. I'm calling it the city of our God. We want God's presence there. And he goes to get the ark from Abinadab's house. And so Uzzah and Ahio, oh, this whole thing? Okay, we'll help you carry it. And they throw it on an ox cart. Shouldn't do that. They didn't cover it. David's dancing and he's playing his music and the worship team's rocking and, and Uzzah's just marching along. Like, man, I'm glad we finally got a purpose for this thing. And the ox starts to stumble and he reaches out. And the awesomeness and the holiness and the fear of God strikes every one of them. And Uzzah falls dead. The truth is, he physically fell dead in that moment, but he was probably already spiritually dead for a long time before that. 
He drops over dead. David stops the parade. He said, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. So David leaves the ark in the home of a guy named Obed-Edom. Now, I know this has been a long winding story as we've followed the ark, but if there's anybody that I can encourage you to be like, it's Obed-Edom. Let me just show you what the Bible says happened when the ark came to his house. Three things. I just wanna mention quickly the presence and the provision and the proclamation that comes to Obed-Edom's house. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. Now, we don't know why he got picked. We don't know why the Ark of the Covenant went to his house. We don't know if he asked for it. We don't know why he was chosen. But what we do know from this verse is he received it. He received it. That, that, that's, by the way, how anybody comes into a relationship with this awesome God. We receive. We receive. We don't go out and work for it. We don't strive for it. We don't discover it. You know, some people say, oh, I found Jesus. No, you didn't. He found you. The Bible says unless the Spirit draws us, no one seeks God. He's the Father that seeks and saves and runs after the lost ones. And so for whatever reason, Obed-Edom was chosen, but he received the ark. He made room in his house for God's presence. And then it says this, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. This is the provision. First, there's the presence that we make room for God, but then there's the provision of God's blessing that comes when you make room for him. I don't know about you, but I want the blessing of God in my life. I want God's goodness demonstrated on my behalf. I want God's favor. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Spirit of God has different gifts for the body of Christ, but it's the same Spirit that distributes the gifts. And then in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, it says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. I want everything God has for me. But it begins with making room for his presence. Let me just say this before we get to the end here. This next weekend, Friday and Saturday of this week, we're having special services calling it Saturate Weekend. And we've asked evangelist Greg Hubbard to come. He's gonna be preaching this Friday night at seven o'clock. We wanted to push it back an hour to give people time to get home from work, grab a bite to eat. But at seven o'clock, we're gonna have service this Friday night. At six o'clock on Saturday night, we're having church again. And then Greg's gonna preach all the morning services on Sunday, but I'm just gonna assume you're coming to that one. But can I challenge you? to make room for the presence of God? Like why, why would we schedule service on a Friday night and on a Saturday night? One reason, one reason, because we want God's presence. And if you want God's presence, you have to make room for God's presence. You can't just say, hey God, we got a little issue going on. Why don't some, somebody go get God and bring him over, see if this will work out. Because God won't be played. He's not a lucky charm. He's not a rabbit's foot. 
He won't be inserted into your story. He's inserted us into his. So God blessed Obed-Edom. Favor found him because he made room for God's presence. And then the next verse says, verse 12, says, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. In other words, word got out. He was only there for three months, but word got out. Obed-Edom's life was so radically changed by the goodness and the favor and the blessing of God because he made room for God in his life. Word got all the way back to the king and David said, you know what? It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth the risk. I need the favor of God in Israel. We need God's presence. And so this time he goes back to get the tabernacle, but he submits himself to the authority of the word. He does it the right way. He brings the tabernacle into Jerusalem and his son Solomon builds a temple for God's presence where it would stay for the next 400 years until the Babylonians came and took it. Well, they took Jerusalem. We don't really know if they took the, the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, there's people still today, they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you've seen the Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They're looking. I heard they got a new Indiana Jones movie coming out this summer. Like, can I just, spoiler alert, they're not gonna find the Ark of the Covenant. I don't even know if they're looking for it, but I'm just telling you, if there's any scriptural accuracy to it, they're not gonna find the Ark. And the reason they're not gonna find it is because the Bible says nobody's gonna find it. Jeremiah chapter three, verse 15 says, I will give you a shepherd after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. And in those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. In fact, it'll never enter their minds or even be remembered. It's not gonna be missed, nor will another one be made. Why? Why did God say there's coming a point where I'm gonna send you a shepherd and we know that's Jesus. And people aren't even gonna look for the ark anymore because the ark is a shadow that goes before the substance. And when Jesus steps on the scene, nobody looks for the shadow anymore because the ark of the covenant was just, it was an earthly model of a heavenly ark. In fact, Revelation 11 tells us that the ark of the covenant is in the presence of the Lord. So the true ark is there. And Jesus, as, as we just look at the word of God today, what I want you to see is that the ark of the covenant is a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of what it looks like in the Old Testament for us in the new covenant to follow after Jesus. He's, he's the manna that they put in the ark. He's the stone tablets. He's the word of God. They even took part of Aaron's staff that though it was a dead stick, it budded with life. They put part of his staff in the box and Jesus even fulfilled that when death hung and from it came life. We're invited today, church, to, to make room
That's all, that's all I want to challenge you to do. Not, not just right now, but in your heart, and your life, this week. To, to not make the mistake of so many other people throughout history and throughout the word of God that would just say, we want God, but we want our own agenda. We want God, but we don't want to reverence his presence. We want God's blessing, but we don't want to make room for him. I wonder if there's any Obed-Edoms in the church today that would say, God, I, I want the presence of God. I want every blessing that he has for me. I want my life to testify to others. I want to just pray over us as we end this service today. Our time is gone, but I want to just ask you where you're at. Would you just bow your hearts with me for a moment? God, I thank you today that, that we have access into your presence. We have access, not not going to a priest to go before you, but Lord, we have access into your presence. And God, I pray today that you would give us a desire to follow your presence, to pursue your presence. God, I even pray towards this next weekend, towards Friday and Saturday, Lord, let it, let it be a time of outpouring. Let it be a time where, where your glory just hovers over the mercy seat where we sense your power and your presence in new ways and where gifts are poured out on your church and where there's a witness, a collective witness that goes out from our house that people would hear about us like they heard about Obed-Edom and said God is blessing and favoring his household. I don't know what they've got in there, but I want what they've got. God, we pray for an outpouring of your spirit and we commit this day to follow Jesus, to follow the word, to pursue your presence and be submitted to your authority in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. 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 Would you stand to your feet with me all over this?